This is a Federal News Network podcast. As the biggest civilian agency, the Veterans Affairs Department buys lots of stuff every year, from building construction to aspirin. Yet, according to Government Accountability Office auditors, VA falls short in planning and managing its crucial acquisition workforce. For more on its comprehensive survey of that workforce, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke with the GAO's Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisitions, Shelby Oakley. This was a survey, uh, first of all, well, let's begin with the scope of the acquisition workforce at VA. It's not just a few people, is it? It's definitely not. It's a very large workforce, about over 16,000 people. And, you know, this includes folks such as contracting officers and contracting officer representatives that are responsible for, you know, managing and monitoring contract execution and program and project managers. And at VA, they're spread out over VA's many different organizations. And so it's a very vast and dispersed workforce. And you decided to survey them. What were you trying to get at here in talking to them? Absolutely. So as you are aware, Tom, we identified VA acquisition management as high risk in 2019. And one of the reasons why we did that is because over and over again in our work on VA acquisition management, we kept hearing information from VA's acquisition workforce about, you know, their workload and their access to training and definitely definitely um, a range of issues that affected their ability to effectively do their jobs. And so we decided to undertake this work to ask them about those topics. You know, how do you think about your workload, your, how you're are rated, how your performance is managed, what training you have access to, and what um, opportunities there are for you for promotion potential, and, you know, how VA uses flexibilities or incentives to retain its workforce. So we asked about a broad range of questions um, across this workforce. And we were trying to really understand kind of the general sense of the acquisition workforce in general. And what was your survey methodology? Was it conversations in person or a instrument that they filled out a form or a combination of both? Yeah, so we actually sent a general, we sent a survey, an actual web-based survey out to a generalizable sample of the acquisition workforce um, so that we could project our findings um, to the entire workforce. And so we did a number of steps to get, um, you know, as many folks to respond to that survey as possible. And so once we got the survey results in and were able to kind of distill those results, we then held focus groups um, with various members of the acquisition workforce to get a little bit more behind um, what the results of those surveys were. And give us the top-line results, because you found satisfaction in some areas of the work, but dissatisfaction in others, and kind of, well, mezza-mezza in the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when we asked the VA acquisition workforce, they were generally positive with things like the training that they got from the VA Acquisition Academy, um, how their immediate supervisor treated them and the environment that that immediate supervisor sent, and then also the opportunities that they were provided to balance their work life through things like telework. Um, And so those were all pretty positive um, responses. But, you know, (laughs) they did identify issues, um, not surprisingly, with their workload um, as well as how they're rated and assessed, their performance management, um, you know, the uh, steps that VA has taken to retain and recruit employees, and then just generally leadership uh, received lower marks across VA. 
And were you able to quantify this in some way? Yeah, so um, our report includes a lot of data and a lot of percentages, but get, let me give you a sense. So 80% of the workforce that we uh, surveyed identified that they were happy with their immediate supervisor. Conversely, only 16% of the workforce agreed that their performance expectations are reasonable. So you can kind of see that whenever (laughs) um, 84% of your workforce doesn't think that their performance expectations are reasonable, there's a challenge there that needs to be addressed by VA leadership. We're speaking with Shelby Oakley. She is the GAO's Director for Contracting and National Security Acquisitions. And in the report, you said that, you know, leadership really needs to do a better job of understanding, measuring, and having a sense of the scope of the workforce and the issues there. Maybe elaborate on that point. Sure. So to be able to do our survey, we wanted to collect information about the entirety of the workforce, right? Give us your data. Give us your information on the entirety of this workforce. That was a real challenge for VA. It took six-plus months for us to get um, reliable data to be able to um, survey that acquisition workforce. And what we found is that VA doesn't really have, um, couldn't really produce uh, comprehensive data on his workforce. They didn't have um, information on, you know, certification levels, education levels, tenure, retirement eligibility, those types of things. Also, where they're located was a challenge. So, you know, as I mentioned, this is a very dispersed workforce across, you know, different administrations. And it was difficult for VA to have, you know, comprehensive data on that. And so we identified some issues with that. And there are system-related issues um, that are driving that. You know, the the systems that are available to VA um, aren't necessarily intended to provide that information. Um, And so we made some a recommendation to VA to really um, take steps to obtain that data. And that might mean reconciling data between the various systems that it uses to identify information on its acquisition workforce. Got it. And is there any sense, I know this might have been outside of the scope of this particular study, but does this all add up to challenges in the way VA goes about acquisition? Because we've seen some acquisitions not come out so well in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is, right, you can't, without having comprehensive data on your workforce, such as, you know, its size, its location, and capabilities, you can't really make data-driven human capital decisions about how to rebalance workload, how to shift resources to meet your most pressing needs. And I think that that's a key point. Um, This acquisition workforce supports these huge acquisitions, such as, like, the employee... um, such as the uh, electronic health record system and their new financial management system. And so without a really well-trained workforce that has the capacity to be able to do that, you know, these, it's going to be a struggle. And so, you know, really having this data underpins being able to make good decisions about where you put your resources and who you have in place to manage these big acquisitions. It strikes me the implications really cut across a lot of functions. One is the human capital or HR function. One is the IT function to be able to extract the data needed. And of course, it's also the acquisition and contracting function itself. Yeah, I mean, this data, we had to work with many different offices to obtain this data, right? Because as you mentioned, HR plays a role. 
you know, the con- the uh, Office of Contracting, Acquisition, and Logistics plays a role. So there's a number of folks that play a role in ensuring that this data is available and ready for decision makers uh, to manage um, that workforce. And so it becomes much more complicated um, in that regard. And when you really think about this, every agency, every department should have this kind of data about every function group across the whole government, right? Absolutely, yeah. And as you know, we have um, human capital management as a high-risk area government-wide because of issues just like this. And what were VA's executives' acceptance? Do they agree with you and, and say, yeah, you're right about this? I mean, we didn't want to just hear from the employees, right? We wanted to talk to VA leadership and ask them about, like, what do you know about this? What are you doing about this? What's your take on this, right? And, you know, I think that they definitely acknowledged the things that we were hearing because they had been hearing the things, the same types of things. You know, they agreed that workload and performance management are challenges, and and they are taking steps to address some of these issues. They're, they're putting in place some action plans to really think about that workload issue across the organization and developing some tools to better um, kind of have uh, quantitative information upon which to make decisions. Um, and they're requiring things like, you know, supervisors to meet with their <laughs> their staff regularly to discuss performance expectations. And so, you know, we definitely want to acknowledge um, that they're doing that. But one thing we did find is, is that, you know, the office responsible for writ large managing the acquisition workforce doesn't really have direct authority over probably the majority of the acquisition workforce. And so we pointed out in our report that those roles and responsibilities throughout VA for managing the acquisition workforce, including, you know, training it, knowing what you have, um, really need to be better documented so that everybody understands the role that they play in ensuring this workforce is well-equipped and able to execute those acquisitions. Shelby Oakley is Director of Contract and national security acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, 
ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. 
And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And 
diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in, and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.